It's absolutely fascinating. But it was also very frustrating because the person at the heart of the story, Beatrice Coya, was almost invisible in the document, in the trial. Even though everyone was talking about this wedding and about you know, what was represented by her mother's decision to marry her when she was a young child, even though the Catholic law of marriage emphasized the requirement of full informed consent by both partners for marriage, almost no one who testified in the trial referred at all to really to anything she did or said or thought. And she herself never testified. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Jeremy Mumford, Assistant Professor of History at Brown University in the US. Jeremy Mumford is an historian of early colonial Peru. His research addresses the ways in which Andean people interacted with the colonial state in the half-century after the Spanish invasion of the Inca Kingdom in 1531. This is the third episode in our theme Latin America, in which we will hear more about Jeremy Mumford's recent research about a child marriage in Cusco in 1565. Jeremy Mumford was a scholar at SCAS in the spring of 2022, and we met in the studio just before his return to the US. Welcome to SCAS Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Thank you, Natalie. So I'm a historian of the colonial Andes. I came to this area a little bit indirectly. I was working in television and I had applied to go to graduate school in history to study United States history. But I quit my job three months early so that I could just visit South America as a tourist and a backpacker. And I traveled around Peru and Ecuador and Bolivia. And I was so taken by the society and landscape and the history that seemed to be present in everyday life all around me that I ended up switching my focus to Latin American history and specifically to that region, the Andes. When I was backpacking, I was carrying with me English translation of the mestizo historian El Inca Garcilaso de la Vega, his royal commentaries of the Inca, which was written just a few decades after the Spanish invaded Peru in the 1530s. And it was such a fascinating account of a sort of hybrid world of Spain and the Incas and violence and beauty that I ended up doing most of my research on that very period. Interesting how a backpack trip can open your eyes for a new research field. Very broadly then, you've mentioned a little bit, what is your research about? And especially what did you do before we got into the topic that we are talking about today? My dissertation and my first book were about an important subject in social and political history in the immediate aftermath of the Spanish invasion. 
which was something called the, quote, general resettlement of Indians in Spanish, la reducción general de indios, a massive social engineering campaign carried out by the Spanish viceroy and the Spanish state in the 1570s, so about a generation after the Spanish invaded, in which they forced the entire indigenous population to resettle in new towns and villages that were more centralized, where they could be better managed and controlled both by indigenous authorities and Spanish priests, where they could be indoctrinated in Christianity and they could be counted and taxed. And it was something that was known to have happened and that everyone all the historians had referred to it for a long time as an important event, but was poorly understood because it was poorly documented. And so I set out to try to figure out what really happened. And that's never a good idea for a dissertation. It turned into a bigger project and a more difficult one than I had in mind, and it was one that I completed more partially and ambiguously than I originally intended. But ultimately what I found was that it was a um, very negotiated settlement between the indigenous lords and the Spanish administrators, where the indigenous population was basically kept two homes, one home in the old villages and another in the new colonial ones. So they could have, in a sense, two identities, one as a colonial subject and one as perhaps free indigenous subject. So that was the subject of my first book, which was published in 2012, Vertical Empire. And what happened then? Well, I was looking for something that would be more focused and more human scale or more individual scale for a second project. And I came across a lawsuit, not a lawsuit, a, a trial, I should say. I read references to a trial that was in the General Archive of the Indies in Spain and Seville relating to an illegal marriage between a Spanish man and a young indigenous girl, a princess in some sense, the daughter of the man whom the Spanish recognized as the last Inca king and the child who inherited his wealth and privileges, which had been granted to him by the Spanish. She was an heiress to a great fortune as a young girl and her upbringing was being managed by the viceroy and his agents. She was being kept in a convent to be educated there and kept for her eventual marriage when she was grown to some man whom the viceroy would choose for her, who would be the recipient of her wealth. Her mother, who was uh, named Kusi Warkai, who was herself an Inca princess, was disinherited and had lost control of her own daughter, as well as most of the wealth she enjoyed while her husband was living. And she removed her daughter from the convent after her daughter turned seven and took her to the home of a Spanish family called the Maldonados, who were friends of hers, and eventually arranged her marriage to the younger brother of the householder and lord of that country house, whose name was Cristobal Maldonado who was married to her seven-year-old daughter, Beatrice Coya. And this marriage, which was illegal in several different ways, was quickly reversed and 
led to a lengthy trial that was preserved in a, in a large archival document, which, as far as I can tell, no one had fully read before. And it seemed like a very interesting story for a microhistory. So I was able to get a digitized copy of the whole file, almost uh, a thousand double-sided folios, and work my way through it and, and try to tell the story of this wedding and everything that led up to it and came about as a result of it. Sounds like you found a treasure there. The- yes, it's absolutely fascinating. But it was also very frustrating because the person at the heart of the story, Beatrice Koya, was almost invisible in the document, in the trial, even though everyone was talking about this wedding and about you know, what was represented by her mother's decision to marry her when she was a young child, even though the Catholic law of marriage emphasized the requirement of full informed consent by both partners for marriage, almost no one who testified in the trial referred at all to really to anything she did or said or thought. And she herself never testified, except very briefly later under very sort of controlled circumstances. But during the trial itself, both sides seemed to agree that she should be kept out of it and that her experiences weren't really relevant. Also, even though her husband, Cristobal, claimed to have raped her as a way of consummating the marriage and making it legal, and even though he was on trial and the prosecutor was trying to bring in every possible fact that was detrimental to him to put him in a bad light, neither side said almost anything about this alleged child rape. It's not absolutely clear that it actually happened, but if it did happen, it supported his side rather than being any kind of strike against him or any kind of crime on his part. And I found that very interesting and disturbing and also frustrating because there was, apart from a a kind of negative evidence of this lack of attention, the document had very little to say about an aspect that seemed quite central, especially from the perspective of the child. Yes, I can understand that this is a fascinating story and must be fascinating material to look through. And as you say, also frustrating that you have this missing voice of of the child, of the person who's actually in the center of this or should be in the center of this. Before we go into some details of the wedding and what happened at trial, maybe we can go back a little bit and talk about the um, relationship between the Spanish and the Inca at the time. What do we have to know about what was going on in history in order to understand this story? Thank you for bringing that up. To me, that's one of the most interesting and I mean, fascinating and challenging aspects of this whole area of history, and it's what motivates me to understand it. The Inca state in the Andes before the Spanish invasion was a large and sophisticated you could almost say bureaucratic kingdom, a nation state, comparable in a lot of ways to those of Europe or Asia or parts of Africa with a complex and articulated elite in in different levels with different specialized functions, a strong nationalist ideology, a sense of history, 
a sense of geography and different regional identities, but lacking something that to Europeans, including to scholars in modern times, seems as if it's essential to build a state, which is writing. The Incas did not have any kind of graphic record keeping. They had something which to some extent filled that niche and is poorly understood, which is called the kipu, records on knotted string or yarn, cotton or, or wool, that we understand partially. They were, they were very efficient as spreadsheets where you could keep quantitative records about censuses and inventories of goods and taxes and, and labor service, and you could add up numbers fairly efficiently with them. But even though the sources also say that they were used to keep other kinds of records equivalent to writing, we don't understand how, and it's not clear that that is actually correct. It may have been that other kinds of information were recorded by memory with the aid of kipu as a kind of a memory device, but it's, it's very poorly understood. And in any case, even if the kipu functioned in ways that we don't understand as something more analogous to writing, the Inca state lacked the kind of procedures of record keeping that we assume states require. And it's actually kind of extraordinary that the state was able to function as effectively as it did over such a large area. I mean, in an area it was comparable to the large European states of the period. It was certainly the largest indigenous state before European invasions. And it seems to have had a fairly stable and effective governing regime. Anyway, at the time the Spanish invaded, a relatively small invading force was able to dominate a very large area in part because the empire was so centralized. By conquering the king, the Sapa Inca, and his high command, they were able to fairly quickly control the rest of the state in a way that would not have been possible in a weaker, more decentralized society, or I mean, a weaker state. And from the beginning, the Spanish colonial state, if you could call it that, was kind of a European, a small European group of settler officials grafted onto a larger pre-existing indigenous bureaucracy, or at least official class. And so there was a lot of contact between the indigenous and Spanish elites. And in the early period, they intermarried considerably. And in spite of the extreme violence and inequality of a situation where one nation conquers another, they had a lot of respect for one another and were able to understand each other. In some ways, they shared many of the same values and ideas and ideologies. The Spanish had a lot of respect for the ability of the Inca royal family to conquer and create an empire. They recorded a lot of information about Inca history. So these are some of the themes. I'm not at all interested in portraying colonial conquest as benign, but I think it's interesting and important to look at the aspects of um, collaboration between a conquering group and a conquered elite. That's sort of what is the subject of both of these 
projects that I've worked on, this large-scale one about colonial social engineering and this much smaller-scale one about an attempt by a Spanish family and an indigenous family to form an alliance between two clans for mutual advantage. Collaboration was also the word I was thinking about while, while you were talking. But let's return to Beatrice Coya. So just a brief recap, who was she? Her mother was an Inca princess and her father was an Inca prince. They were said to be, or they, they identified themselves as siblings because it was part of Inca ideology that at the very highest levels, siblings married each other, rather like the pharaohs of Egypt. It's not certain whether they actually were. That may have been an ideological fiction that they were, but they may have been. And they came out of the jungle kingdom, which was called Vilcabamba, to Cusco in order to make their peace with the Spanish state and to accept Spanish and Christian authority and receive privileges within the colonial state in exchange. And they had a, a baby daughter probably very soon after they arrived in Cusco. They were quite young themselves, probably teenagers. And just a few years later, her father died, probably poisoned, probably assassinated by an indigenous rival in Cusco. And her mother found herself a widow with an infant or now a toddler on her hands. The mother is named Cusiwarkai, and her daughter was christened Beatrice. We know her as Beatrice Coya. Because Beatrice inherited all of her father's property and privileges, she was much too valuable to remain with her mother. And the agents of the viceroy very quickly placed her in a convent where she could be looked after and controlled. And her mother went from being rich and powerful to being relatively poor overnight as a result. In Spanish law, the widow essentially inherits nothing. And the widow inherits her own property from her own parents. But the shared property of the marriage and the father's property all go to the children. And so she was in a very disempowered, a dangerously disempowered position. But she had friends, both Spanish and indigenous, people who liked her and or people who hoped to gain something from their relationship with her. And one of her friends was a man named Arias Maldonado, who was himself a lord in the sense that he had a community of indigenous subjects called an encomienda who paid tribute to him. And he hoped to bring young Beatrice's lordship into his family as well through marriage to his younger brother, Cristobal. And Cusiwarkai, Beatrice's mother, I think she was sincerely attached to and perhaps to them and perhaps they were to her. She spent a lot of time with them and eventually she, she went to the convent and simply removed her daughter, perhaps by bribing the gatekeeper and took her out and brought her to the family of the Maldonados, who were very respectable, wealthy, admired family. And once the daughter was there, it was difficult for the Spanish officials to take her away again because it seemed very legitimate that she should be with this elite family with the permission of her mother. But we don't know. All we can do, we have a few data points about her perspective. We know that she was in this convent where there were a lot of young women who were themselves had been taken away from their own or had left their own families, some Spanish, some mestiza. So it's quite possible that she got attention and affection in this new environment. As a young child, surrounded by a bunch of, of young women who themselves were lonely and homesick, it's also very possible that she was emotionally deprived. 
it seems quite likely when her mother took her that she would have been happy to be with her mother again. But we don't know much about the conditions under which she lived with the Maldonados. We know that she did not speak Spanish. And her own mother spoke Spanish very imperfectly. And it does not appear that the Maldonados really spoke Quechua. So it's not quite clear how communication worked. She had a nurse, a young indigenous woman who took care of her, who was called a china, which was a word for servant. And that may have been the person who she was closest to. We have one data point from the wedding itself. One of the witnesses who was testifying about the wedding ceremony said that when Arias Maldonado's wife, the mistress of the house, came to bring her to her new bridegroom, took her by the hand, she shrank away and went back to the china, the, the nurse or the servant, and said no and cried. So we have this moment of fear and sadness. We also have this other data point, which is a couple of days after the wedding, when the Spanish governor of Cusco came out to the Maldonado's country house to arrest them and to bring Beatrice back to the convent. She was hiding in a hidden room with Cristobal, her new husband, and didn't make a sound till, I mean, it was sort of absurd that they were hoping to hide, but eventually the Spanish governor's men found them and brought them back. And as the governor was leading Beatrice by the hand through the streets of the city on Christmas morning back to the convent, she cried out loudly so the spectators could hear that she was married and that she didn't want to go back to the convent. We know this because it was written in a letter to the governor, and it wouldn't make sense to make up a story in a letter written to the person who was there himself. So it seems likely that this actually happened. So this suggests that at that moment, she didn't want to go back to the convent. She did feel that she had a new life, that she was married, and that also that she had kind of the gumption to oppose the governor in public and call out to spectators. So between these two data points, it's very hard to know, but she, I think, was on an emotional roller coaster. I imagine so. If you're seven and you just got married, then that's not the easiest situation to find yourself in. But we have this wedding and the time before the wedding when preparations are made and considerations also what should happen. And if I interpreted your article correctly, there was also some hesitation, especially of the mother, if this wedding really should take place in the end. So it wasn't quite straightforward to, to get there. That's absolutely right. Her mother had apparently agreed to this sometime before. And for the wedding, the Maldonados invited a lot of their friends from the city of Cusco, both indigenous and mestizo and Spanish, to come to this country house. And it was almost like one of these French movies about a, you know, a big party in a, in a house in the country that goes on for several days. They were there for about five days with various guests. And during this time, Cusiwarkai, Beatrice's mother, can't make up her mind whether to go through with it. It seems that She was getting different advice from different friends. We don't know why she was hesitating. She testified, and her testimony is rather fascinating, but it's also, like most of the principal characters, very unreliable. And she doesn't explain what was really going through her head. It seems that she may have been thinking that actually there was some other course that she could take that would be more advantageous or safe for her and for her daughter than the one she had chosen. But she wasn't sure. And the Maldonados were very affectionate, but also full of veiled threats. 
And she had a close friend who was the mestizo son of another Spanish lord and indigenous wife or mistress who may have had his own interests in the matter, may have wanted to marry Beatrice to someone in his own circle of influence, but who at any rate was telling her that she was making a mistake. So she went back and forth, and a lot of witnesses testify that the mother was seen crying. They don't say anything about what Beatrice was doing. So, I mean, the function of this marriage was to strengthen the alliance between the two families and also to give mother and daughter security and, and a certain amount of wealth. That's right. Right. And on a rational level, that is understandable. And those were maybe the times when it worked like that. Alliances through marriage, of course. But on an emotional level, it's very hard to grasp to marry away your seven-year-old daughter and also to all these guests around to just accept this. Yes. What were the reactions of the guests or was there anything going on? That's a good question because a lot of the guests testify. Some of them were more aligned with the Maldonados. Some of them were, were enemies of the Maldonados, or at least by the time of the trial were. And so their testimony conflicts a great deal. The trial is a fascinating document because there's a lot of testimony from different individuals in different voices and in fairly colloquial Spanish, which makes it seem as if it records what different people actually said. You can never be sure of that with any historical document, but the nature of the prose, the distinctiveness of the different voices and the colloquial nature of how they express themselves is persuasive evidence that these were people's actual voices in this trial. But... On the other hand, I don't trust anything that anybody says unless it's uncontested and, and there's no reason for everybody to lie about it. The witnesses routinely make contradictory and opposite claims about the same event or, or what somebody said or did, which is something that, I mean, it's rather fascinating. It's a bit like that film Rashomon or some other narrative of different perceptions of the same events. Overall, most of the witnesses say that they were opposed to the wedding. After all, they're testifying in a trial that presupposes the wedding was illegal, so it makes sense for them to say that. The fact that they were there suggests that they were not so opposed to it at the time. One witness testifies that he asked another person who was a kind of client or assistant to the Maldonados if the marriage had really happened afterwards. And he said, isn't she very young to marry? And the witness testifies that a client of the Maldonado said, no, no, she's, she's a grown person. She can manage her own household. And it's very hard to know whether this was sort of a, a kind of a joke, kind of an ugly joke, or whether it was meant seriously. How was it at that point of time with the child marriage in, in general? How was that viewed upon and, and was it common at all? It was not common. It was illegal in the canon law of the Catholic Church, which was the governing law for most questions of marriage in Catholic Europe. And it was also illegal in most Protestant countries as well, on the principle that you have to be old enough to knowledgeably consent, whether you're a man or a woman, to marriage. And this was something that was very important ideologically in the Catholic Church, actually much more so in the Catholic Church than in any of the Protestant churches. It's something that we take for granted today, but that in general has not been common in any historical society. The idea that individuals, especially women and girls, should have the right to consent to marriage or to refuse to marry. 
But in the law of the Catholic Church, going back to the very early days of the Church, this was emphasized as a non-negotiable point. Of course, in practice, there were lots of situations where it was a dead letter, but there had to be an elaborate pretense that both the husband and the wife were freely agreeing to the marriage. So the ban on child marriages for either boys or girls was a corollary to that requirement. Child marriages don't seem to have been at all common in Europe, except in a few situations. For instance, in northern Italian cities, perhaps in Italy in general, but it's well documented in northern Italian cities, that older men often married very, very young women, you know, in their teens, and in some cases, under 12. 12 was the age at which girls could marry and, and boys could marry at 14. There's a few regions where, other regions where it's documented, another is in northern England. But precisely the fact that it stands out in those places where there seems to have been a local culture that tolerated it, it seems that it was not common elsewhere. Children were often betrothed starting anytime after birth, perhaps even before birth, informally, but, but betrothals could be broken. And the general assumption was that a child who was betrothed before puberty, before 12 or 14, would theoretically have the chance to break that betrothal at the time when they were supposed to be married after they came of age. So they're sort of promised away, but then maybe it might not happen. Right. Cristobal, he claims to have consummated the marriage with the Beatrice. And we don't know if that actually happened or not, but why was it important for him to claim that anyway? So in cases where an adult man married an underage girl, for instance, in Italy, where there were a lot of church trials about this point, the husband always claimed to have consummated the marriage sexually because that showed that the bride, even though she was young, that she was old enough to have sex and that in some weird, twisted logic, at least by our thinking, that showed that she consented. Yeah, that's a strange way of arguing, but if you accept this as a logic, then it works. <laughs> I find it very interesting that the Catholic Church had this concept of consent uh, before others had it, but then anyway, it wasn't put to work properly in practice. A lot of historians have argued actually about this exact point. How meaningful was the Catholic insistence on free consent to marriage in the early modern world, in different, in different regions of the early modern world at different times? A lot of historians of the colonial Spanish world, or not, I mean, of the early modern Spanish world of Spain and Latin America, have argued that it, it was quite important. There's a lot of evidence of young people, you know, typically teenagers who were being married by their parents against their will, if they could escape and get to the local priest or bishop and complain then they wouldn't have to go through with the wedding. The, the church would side often with the individual rather than with the family. I mean, certainly nothing happens all the time, but th this was a pattern. And at times it seems surprising that the church would not side with the patriarchal authority, but with young people. And also that priests would routinely marry, secretly marry young people to each other against their family's wishes. This a Romeo and Juliet scenario. There was always some priest who you could rope in to do the wedding, even though their families were livid with rage about it. And it's not totally clear to me exactly what was going on with this. I mean, why it was there was this sort of institutional logic in the Catholic Church in favor of consensualism. 
It was an ideological commitment. And it's interesting that it was almost absent in the Protestant Reformation. A lot of people have pointed out that in Germany and Northern Europe, the church completely supported the right of fathers to control their children, even into adulthood, in ways that was not true in the Catholic Southern Europe and its colonial extensions. And even in France, although France was a Catholic country, the French church also supported fathers more. In fact, at the Council of Trent in the 1560s, the French contingent bitterly opposed the idea that young people could get married against their father's permission, even though that was ultimately upheld. So it was to some extent a north-south thing that Southern Europe was somehow more committed to consensualism in marriage. It's not clear to me why. I mean, we know from British novels that, marriage novels that, I mean, you know, marriage was always about family advantage. Parents almost always controlled their children's marriage. And that is true in Britain, in France, in Scandinavia. It's certainly true in Sweden, in early modern Sweden, that families controlled marriages, not individuals, or much more so than individuals did. And to some extent, in Spain and in Peru also, young people had more say in the matter, but not Beatrice. We had these court proceedings. Cristobal and his brother were arrested and put in front of court. What happened then to them? So the marriage was declared null and void right away. And the Maldonado brothers were put on trial, as you said, and they were kept in prison. And this was, I think, unexpected because they were rich and powerful. The degree to which the Spanish governor was personally offended and angry by what the Maldonados had done was, I think they didn't expect it. And there was a lot of resentment among some of the other encomenderos or lords in Cusco against the Spanish governor for this. But he kept them in jail for several months, although they periodically would leave or break out one way or another and then be returned to jail. And eventually he... Um, okay, so what happened was the overall governor of the colony, he, who was not technically a viceroy, claimed that there was evidence of a conspiracy to assassinate him, which was probably not true. It was probably more or less made up. But he used it as an opportunity to get all of the people who he wanted out of Peru to get them all sent back to Spain. And so among this, the Maldonado brothers, halfway through the trial, were sent to Spain. And once they were there, they were convicted. And they were sentenced to be banished from Peru for a certain lengthy period and to pay a very heavy fine and several other sanctions. They appealed, and Spain was a very bureaucratic state. Appeals went on and on for a long time. And actually, years later, after Beatrice had been married to somebody else, again, without any say-so on her part, Cristobal got permission to go back to Peru to sue in church court long after the fact to try to recover his wife. But that was impossible, and, and then he eventually went back to Spain again. Meanwhile, she was married under very tragic circumstances. I've said that her family was divided in two. Some of her family was in Cusco and accepted Spanish authority, and some of her family was in Vilcabamba in the jungle rebelling against Spanish, or not rebelling against Spanish authority, resisting Spanish invasion and hoping to reconquer Peru. Several years after the failed marriage to the Maldonados, the Spanish sent an expeditionary force to Vilcabamba and destroyed it and brought back the 
Inca lords in chains and executed the main leader, the Inca king, the um, named Tupac Amaru, Topa Amaru. And the man who was in charge of that force, who was a relative of Ignatius of Loyola, his name was also Loyola, was given Beatrice in marriage as a reward. So she was given as a reward to the man who killed her own relatives. Of course, again, we have no idea what her perspective was on that. It's perfectly possible that she was, at that point, happy to leave the convent, to start married life, to have her own household, to have independence and authority. She may have been happy that the Spanish finally destroyed her family in Vilcabamba, for all we know. Or she may have been bitterly resentful and, and angry. We do know that she had one child, a daughter, and that in her will, she said that when her daughter came of age, that her daughter should have the right to choose to stay in a convent rather than to marry. And it's possible that the fact that that's in her will is an indication of how she felt about her own marriage. She wants to empower her daughter to make her own decision. Yeah. Do we know what happened to the daughter? Her daughter was also married to another Spanish lord. And the fortune and encomienda, or lordship, that had been given originally to Beatrice's Inca father passed down in the family of Beatrice's daughter's husband and Beatrice's daughter, Ana. The family were the Marqueses of Oropesa, and the region that they that family controlled was called the Marquesado of Oropesa, and it's still a, a well-defined area outside of Cusco today. They were a very rich family for, for a long time. What happened to her mother, who from the beginning went into this marriage deal, so to say, for her own sake of security? How did she get on after Beatrice's husband was sent away, so to say? We know a lot more about her than we do about Beatrice. She was involved in a lot of different scandals and events in the Inca community in Cusco. One of the other people who figures in the trial, a mestizo young man named Juan, who was kind of her, one of her advisors. Eventually, the two of them became lovers. It's possible they were at the time, that's not clear, but eventually they had children together. And she continued to be a very um, influential person among her larger family group in Cusco. And years later, when a new viceroy was trying to wipe out her relatives in, or that is her siblings and other relatives in Vilcabamba, she was exchanging letters with them and apparently conspiring with them or trying to coordinate with them against the Spanish. And she also actually had the courage to confront the viceroy. And in some ways, she was, just because of her status, she could get away with it. She confronted him and accused him of having you know, mistreated her and her family. And he kind of just laughed it off like it was just a joke. But if nothing else, she could challenge him in public and perhaps in some sense embarrass him and get away with it. She had a defiant personality, but she wasn't able to, you know, to stand up to the Spanish legal system. You're working on a book. You have written this article that's already published. Yes, I'm working on a book about Beatrice Coya and and this trial. I mean, it's under contract and it's coming along, but I've gotten a little bit sidetracked on a research project 
about the idea of children's rights, which is the, the research I've been doing in SCAS during the time I've been here, which has been a really exciting period of several months. And I've been reading a lot about the ideology of children's liberation in the 1970s in the United States as a sort of response to my own frustration at not understanding Beatrice's experience and not knowing how to think about her victimization. It just got me curious about this theoretical issue about the oppression of children. And I began reading a lot of work from a lot of writing by philosophers and legal scholars and journalists and psychologists from the 1970s about the rights of children. This was a time when a lot of people thought that children should be liberated into the civil rights that adults hold, a position which, you know, which very few people would advocate today. It's interesting because it's not so long ago. I mean, I was born in the 70s, so it feels <laughs> very recently. It's not long ago at all. And that people didn't talk about this before that, I think, is also fascinating. I mean, the idea that children should be liberated, the idea that children should have the right to leave their families, even young children, basically any child who is old enough to articulate their wishes should have the right to leave their family, to form new relationships, to move to another place, to work for pay, to buy and sell property, to vote, to drive. I mean, you know, people didn't take it seriously for the same reasons that few people would take it seriously today, most people would say that children's essential right is to be protected and that parents, what they really owe their children is protection and care rather than autonomy. But during the emancipation politics, this sort of radical liberatory ideology of the late 60s and early 70s, people began to suspect that actually children, maybe it was a blind spot. Maybe children did have the capacity and the right to basically escape childhood. And presumably this was never a really widely held belief. But one thing that's interesting to me is that in the early and mid 70s, in the sort of liberal mainstream discourse in the United States and the New York Times and Harvard Law School, nobody publicly opposed it. And a lot of people said variations of, it seems like a crazy idea, but look at how people used to think that women's liberation was crazy. People used to think that racial equality was impossible. And now we can see that actually those things are not only possible, but necessary. And maybe the same is true for children. At the same time, we still see cases of child marriage is still a problem in the world. It's forbidden in many countries, but it happens in others. I was just listening to the news the other day and they were saying that they are thinking about, in Sweden, thinking about some sort of travel restrictions or control to avoid that families travel back to their home countries and marry away their daughters, which sometimes happen during summer time. So what kind of parallels can you see from your studies of history in Peru to the situation today? Yeah, I've thought about this and read about this too. And it does seem that the biggest problem with what's called child marriage, which is really teen marriage, adolescent marriage, is that teenagers don't have the resources for real autonomy yet. And in general, these are the parents marrying the child without real consent on the part of the child. 
so yeah, I think that it's really, really important for secular egalitarian states to uphold that principle. And that even when it is sort of um, culturally legitimate for people to marry very young, that the state should uphold a minimum marriage age for the sake of the reality of consent. Not because it's somehow terrible for a 15-year-old to have an intimate adult relationship, but because 15-year-olds who get married are being married off by their parents. Let's move to SCAS, where we are right now, in these beautiful surroundings. You were a fellow here during this spring, spring of 2022. How has your experience been so far, being a fellow in this multi-interdisciplinary research environment? SCAS is absolutely wonderful. It's a place where fellows from so many different countries and different kinds of academic intellectual work are all spending time together and sharing their ideas. For me, it's been very inspiring. The only bad thing is that I'm hearing very little Swedish, and I'm trying to improve my Swedish, but I don't have many opportunities. What I love most about the Swedish language is children's literature, and especially the Moomintroll novels of Tove Janssen. So I've been working my way through them and using that as a way to improve my Swedish. But back to SCAS, did you get any new input here on your research or any, any new ideas? Well, every day at lunch, I sit with different people and talk to them about their work and mine. And so a lot of my um, broader thinking about the question of children's rights and children's liberation has come from those conversations. It's been a, a really exciting opportunity that way. And this is actually not the first time you're in Uppsala as a researcher. You were here previously, but then at the Department of History, Uppsala University, which is just across the street, actually, from here. That's right. Three years ago, my wife, Sohini Ramachandran, who is a computational biologist, was a fellow at SCAS. And we came here for six months. And I was lucky enough to get an affiliation with the Department of History at Uppsala University and an office. And that was really special experience to get to know the people in that department. And we had a wonderful time here, which is why I then applied to be a, a fellow at SCAS myself. And we were able to come back for another six months. At that time, we had two children. Now we have three. Maybe it's not a fair comparison, but then if you compare your experience at the Department of History and here at SCAS, what are the differences or similarities there? Well, in the Department of History, that was a wonderful opportunity to get to know some of the people who work on early modern Swedish history and early modern Northern Europe. And in particular, it's a very, very strong department in the history of early modern Sweden and social history and gender history. And for instance, Maria Ogren, who is the leader of a major research project on women and work, was extremely inspiring person to talk to while I was trying to understand gender and women's history in early modern Spain and Peru. So that was a great time for enriching my relationship to early modern history. This has been, on the other hand, really beneficial this visit this year for thinking more broadly. 
outside of early modern history about issues of rights and childhood. Sure. So the more, the wider network of interdisciplinary scholars. Yes, we have had Maria Ogen also as guest on this podcast, actually talking about her project, uh, Gender and Work. Another person who I learned a great deal from three years ago in the history department and this year at SCAS is Margaret Hunt, who is a historian of early modern women's, European women's history. And her work is very, very, very sophisticated and wide ranging. And I've learned from her on both visits. Thank you very much for being on SCAS Talks and talking to me and our listeners, of course. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This time I've talked to Jeremy Mumford, Assistant Professor of History at Brown University in the US, about the child marriage of Beatrice Coya in Peru in 1565. This was the third episode in our theme, Latin America. In episode 35, Rebecca Earle, professor of history at the University of Warwick in the UK, told us more about the history of the humble potato and how it has shaped global history and politics. In episode 32, Carsten Paragard, professor emeritus of social anthropology at the University of Gothenburg, took us to the Andes and told us more about climate change, climate perception and water management in Peru. Currently, we are featuring the following topics. Latin America, gender, genetics and evolution, and also developmental issues and human rights. Jeremy Mumford also referred to the work of historian Maria Ogren, who has also been a guest on this podcast. You can hear more about her project Gender and Work in episode 37. Regular listeners of this podcast will know that the variety of themes reflects the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS with fellows from many different disciplines. And the list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and went then on to also feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures and Asia, citizen and state relations. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. As always, we are very happy if you could recommend this podcast to a colleague, a friend, or why not your students. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and I would like to thank Jeremy Mumford once again for joining me on Scars Talks. And of course you, for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>